Well, good morning, everybody. Last week, Kieran uh, spoke about Colin Buchanan and how much Colin has assisted in the learning of Bible verses for his children and himself, and, uh, and I'd concur, Colin Buchanan and the way that he has uh, brought singing and Bible to, uh, together has been incredibly helpful. However, one thing that was incredibly unhelpful uh, was on the occasion where we were teaching our kids, so we have one of the albums, and one of the songs is that song, Jesus is the Mighty, Mighty King. I think I've shared this before. And uh, it's a great song. It says that Jesus is the Mighty, Mighty King. God made Jesus King of everything. My kids love that song. The verse has something which goes through and goes through a list of names. Adam is not the boss. Uh-uh. Amy is not the boss. Uh-uh. And we just change the names around. Samuel is not the boss. Uh-uh. And, uh, but then we throw in our own names because that's true. God's king of all things. Leon is not the boss. And then, of course, you have the, um, the difficult situation where you, kid, you tell your kids to go and do something and they say, why? And you say, because I'm the boss. And they say, no, no, no. Jesus is the boss. And right then you've got that difficult time where you've got to explain to them the delegated authority that God gives to parents. So you open up Romans 13. Or other passages that are like that. Because doing human relationships, it's hard to navigate sometimes. How's it all fit together and going to work? How am I meant to relate as a parent to my kids? Or how am I relate to other Christians? Or uh, how about to to my wife? Or how do I relate to the needy in the community around me? Or those that are in grief? How do I relate to those who don't love or fear God? And what about those who are persecuting me or who are bent on evil? How do I relate to them? How do I relate to my employer, to my boss, which is weird for me because that's, that's technically all of you. Um, and how do my underlings, as I like to call the NBC staff, how do they relate to, to their magnanimous leader? You know, it's, it is complex to know how to navigate human relationships. And so far in the last two chapters, chapters 12 and now we move into chapter 13, we see that Paul is addressing how many of those relationships ought to function. In fact, he finished the last section in chapter 12 by saying the sweeping statement in verse 18, live at peace with everyone, if possible. As much as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. More than that, he goes on to say, do not take revenge. Leave God to outwork the area of justice and judgment. And I wonder if you listen to that and you think, oh, I'm happy with that. I'll live at peace and I will not take revenge. But then you say, but wait a minute. They are persecuting me. Verses 14 of chapter 12. What do you want me to do to them? Because I'll tell you what I want to do to them. And God's word says, bless them. Bless them and do not curse them. But that person was evil, verse 17. Look at their heart and look at their behaviour. It's evil and so let me at them. But God's word says, do not repay them evil for evil. But they are my enemy, verse 20. And I see that they are hungry. Look at their gaunt little faces and I could make them starve. And God's word says, feed them. Really? Feed them? Didn't you hear what I said? They're my enemy. And now look, they're thirsty. Their dry throats are yearning for liquid and I'll give them none. But God's word says, give them a drink. Are you happy with all of that? Do we remember what Romans, in fact, has been all about? 
So you'll be happy with it if you, if you reflect back and think, hang on, what you and I have received is the most incredible reversal of fortunes. In fact, we're not going to do this, but if you were to go back to chapter 5, you see it all summarized quite concisely. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, you have now received peace with God. And you can know that the peace you receive from God is not as much as it's dependent on you and that you've made this happen. In fact, it's very clear that you contribute as much as a corpse can contribute. In verse 6 of that same chapter, it tells you that it's all because of God's astonishing grace. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And that applies to every single one of us. Because everyone's a sinner, baby. That's the truth. Hot chocolate, if you know that song, they got one consonant wrong and they would have been otherwise on a great biblical truth. Everyone's a sinner, baby. That's the truth. That's what chapters 1 to 3 of Romans has been about. And in verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Why am I reminding you of all of this? Because think about and reflect on how God now relates to you. Were it not for his loving grace, you would still be his enemy, hungry and thirsty, still deserving of his settled wrath against your sin. But his blood, his outpouring sacrifice, has paid your debt and mine. And he's done it in totality. We are justified, we're told. We are found to be righteous, even though we're not like that. Not in action and not in thought. But that this is God's settled declaration on you. We are enemies who are now reconciled and declared to be closer than friends with God, his beloved children. That's how God relates to you. That's his loving kindness that gives you peace. And so Paul's readers in the first centuries hear that. And it's a challenge because it says, if you've been treated that way by God, how will you treat others? If you've been forgiven much, Will you live at peace? Will you put that love into action? And of course, for Paul's readers in the first century, it's a challenge, but it's also a challenge for us, isn't it? They had to apply that into their marriages and their families and their churches and their friendships and their work situations and the pagan society around them. And then they're faced with the next question. What about politics? Now that we've got a new Lord, what about that? How are we meant to do that relationship? What about the Roman occupation? Because Caesar isn't my Lord, Jesus is. And what about that abusive and oppressive tax regime? Surely we don't have to make peace and put love into action in that arena, do we? And Romans 13, verses 1 to 10, answers that question. And in order to understand what the Bible is saying here, it's going to be important for us to set our minds into the context and the history of that time when Paul is writing. You are in the mid-century, mid-first century, around 50-something AD, when the book of Romans gets written by Paul. The Emperor Claudius has been, for a time, the ruling reigner in Rome. 
the ruler who he was reigning in Rome, whatever. And during that time, under Claudius, the Jewish people as well as Christians have been ejected from the city. You can go and read Acts chapter 18 and you can see that that's been true for a number of people. Paul meets up in Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla and and they are refugees from Rome who have been kicked out. And Rome has been increasing in its power. We know that it's opulent, it's polytheistic and it wants nothing to do with Jews or with Christians. We know that the persecution throughout this time is getting increasingly severe So much so that families like Aquila and Priscilla have fled and people are no longer publicly gathering to worship. You can't even get enough blokes to form a synagogue meeting. So people will meet in small gatherings by rivers and in other places. In AD 54, it goes from bad to worse because Nero takes the throne. He's now the Roman emperor. And we know that Paul is writing during the reign of Nero. Simple reason we know that is because it's under Nero's watch that Paul is later to be martyred. And so in Rome, as Paul writes this letter and as it is received, it's during the time that they have a whole stack of persecution and opposition. It's a hidden and underground church. It's persecuted. There are three types of government. The Senate, which is kind of the governing arm. The Praetorium, which is like the military wing. And then the Emperor, the political head. And within that system... You have massive corruption. You have deep fear and suspicion. Emperors don't get voted out of office. They get stabbed in the back. And so you grease the wheels that keep all the powerful people happy. And Nero is famous for being paranoid that he would lose his reign. And not only all of that, the peace of Rome, the power of Rome is on the move. It's conquering increasing territories as its empire expands and expands. And as they do that, they welcome in the beliefs and the practices and the gods of all of those places that they uh, they domineer. Because remember, Rome is polytheistic and there's heaps of room in their pantheon for your gods to be worshipped. Of course, that creates a problem for both the Jew and for the Christian because they believe in only one God. And and the Christian has already made the clear declaration that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And so because of the mounting persecution the believers have in Rome, they start to meet discreetly. And that secrecy adds to the suspicion about them. On top of that, the Christians have allegations that are set against them. Allegations that they're cannibalistic because they're heard to be eating the body and the blood of their God as they practice the Lord's Supper. And that they're atheistic because they worship just one deity and the Christians aren't turning up to the pagan temples and they don't make sacrifices and they're not worshipping the emperor cult. And so this is a tense time to be a follower of Jesus. An incredibly powerful government led by a bloke who is paranoid and brutal and bloodthirsty. He's of questionable sanity and you are on his hit list to be dressed up in animal skins and thrown into the arena to be ripped at by lions or to be set alight as a human torch that might light up the colonnade. And it's into that context that Paul writes Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And he says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Everyone. Every person who's responded to the liberating good news of the gospel of Christ that has set them free is to subject themselves to the governing authority. Really, Paul? 
Surely that is a typo. What on earth are you talking about? Why would we do that? Especially to a guy like Nero. And just so you know where this sermon is going, this is not just a matter of submitting to that guy or to that authority or that leader or... This passage tells us it's really a matter of submitting to Christ, to him as leader, subjecting ourselves to Christ as the one who has the ultimate authority. See, it's important at this point to make sure that we understand what Paul is asking of his readers when he uses that little term, to be subject to. Some translations will have it as subjection or submission. It means to place up under. At its most simple, it means to place yourself under the authority of another. Now, that looks way more concrete when you see the same term being used elsewhere in the New Testament. And there it's going to describe the idea that the church is subject to Christ and his authority. It's how Christians will submit to one another. It's used to describe the dynamic of the marriage relationship and how parents and child are relate to, to relate together and the servant of the master as well as the younger to be subject to their elders. See, when you and I place ourselves under the authority of another, it allows those that have been given that position to function properly. And when it happens right, it creates a workable pattern that allows leadership to happen and responsibilities to be kept. And notice something as well. It's something that you willingly choose to do yourself. It's in the middle voice. You you either do it for yourself or you don't. It's not something that I can impose on you. It's not a rule you must obey. It's a choice you get to make or to not make. And when you make it, you get to participate what God says he's established. And in the context of Romans 13, it's in the context of the governing authorities. And it's saying that this allows authorities to be what God has called them to be and what God is holding them accountable for. See, suppose in the first century you become a Christian. You might well have wanted to believe that you no longer had to obey the Roman Empire. You might have thought that the right response to the governing authorities was anarchy. To reject Caesar, especially Nero, you don't bow down to their gods and you're going to throw off the yoke of Rome and you certainly don't want to financially enable your oppressor. Stop paying the tax. But we discover that God is not about lawlessness and disorder. In fact, when the governing authority is doing its job, this text tells us that it's an instrument of protection and welfare. Keep reading chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, I think we find that hard to believe. But Peter, writing on the same topic later, under incredible and increased persecution himself, says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Now, I know that in your mind and in mine, I'm already mounting all the objections that I've got to this idea. 
All the times that the tyrannical despot has wreaked their havoc on their communities and their neighbours. All of the exception clauses that I want to mount. But before you go there, you and I need to sit with this and catch what it is saying to our brothers and sisters in Nero's Rome. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And then to think about what it's saying to you and to me in our day. Because the principle is that divine authority is the one that has established human governing authority. And this verse tells us that that's true when you're happy with the election result, when your team gets up or when it doesn't get up on election night. It's true when you think it's a good leader and when you think it's a bad leader. It's true in democratic countries as well as socialist settings, dictatorships. It's true. It's true. That divine authority is the one that has established human governing authority. Now, it's not saying that human governing authority is perfect, uh, not by a long shot, but it's saying that God is at work even in that space. Do you remember the scene that Jesus finds himself in before he's executed? He stands before Pontius Pilate. There's the picture of authority. It's in John chapter 19 and verse 10. And Pilate says to Jesus, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or crucify you? See, Pilate knows where power is. He's got the power. But Jesus says to him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. What you're about to do is at God's bequest. You can almost hear Jesus say, you're about to take that power and have me slaughtered and you think that you've got the power but know this it is derived a derived power from the one with supreme power and one day Pilate, you will see that authority and you'll account for the authority that was delegated to you and what you might be doing for evil or for expedience or for the popular vote god is doing for good the saving of many lives See, one thing this ought to tell us as we think about world government or governments in this world is don't panic too much. Ah, but the wrong person got voted in. This is terrible. And and don't get too excited. This is awesome. Look, we just got voted in. Everything is going to turn out right now that we've got this person ruling and reigning and leading. I know it won't. Because in all of that, doesn't that demonstrate to us And exposing us, our faulty trust in human endeavours. That they have fallen and frail and human people at the helm. Oh, appointed by God and designated there, but know the frailty of the system. That ultimately, God is the one who is in authority and he is still on the throne. And his kingdom is forever advancing. And he's the one who rules unchallenged. And he's the one we actually need to submit to daily. And part of that submission will look like our response to the authority structures that are around us. But what if you don't want to do that, though? Well, read on, because it's super clear what happens. Verses 2 to 3. Have a look at them. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So that's pretty clear. What do you notice? 
But what would you notice is actually to think back on the previous chapter where you were told not to take revenge or to execute judgment yourself. And here we discover that the state or the authority structure is given that responsibility. And they're the ones that's meant to keep order and discipline. They're meant to actually push out against the rebel. In fact, what you discover in this passage is that the primary purpose of the state is to serve the people over whom it governs by restraining evil and promoting good. And just stop and think about that for the moment. In your experience, hasn't that been the case? For most people, for most of the time, isn't the governing authorities in your life doing that or seeking to? Do you think about authority like that, that it's there for your good and should be held account to provide that good by promoting good and restraining evil? But that it's there for your good, to restrain your rebellious inclinations and to do good for you and for your neighbour and your neighbour's rebellious inclinations so that you have education and health structures. You have a judicial system, you have roads and rubbish collection, you have an NDIS and you have, my favourite, parking offices, right? And you have fire bans and speed limits and on and on it goes. See, so we can laugh about it, but just recently I went to a seminar that was held by Northern Beaches Council. It was there as a forum for religious and cultural leaders on the Northern Beaches. There's been two of them. One of them was on domestic violence and the other one was mental health and looking at all the services and the needs of the community around us. It was excellent. It was loving. It was fantastic that we have authorities that care about people who are finding themselves in situations of abuse and situations of great need because of their mental health. Praise God. See, amazingly, in verse 4, we read that the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Now, that little word servant is the word that elsewhere is translated as deacon. It's a ministry word. Down in verse 6 of the same chapter, it refers to God's servant again, but there it's a different word. That, that word is commonly used of angels who serve God or priests who serve at the temple. What does that tell you? That part of the way that God is caring for you and for his world is through the authorities that he's put in place. They minister something like priests and angels and deacons. David Seckham, who writes a commentary on Romans, gets to this passage and makes the point that, that God rules over his natural world and he extends that care to the affairs of human beings. And then he says this, Indeed, the human race was created to govern God's creation on his behalf. Authority is not a consequence of evil. It belongs to the original structure of things and it arises from the inner relationship of the Trinitarian God himself. And since the majority of people decline to live voluntarily under God, he rules them by means other than his word. He establishes authorities and power structures to enforce a measure of good behaviour. Because without this discipline, communities eventually self-destruct. See, even a tyrant is better than no ruler. Because no ruler means a multitude of tyrants and endless disruption to people's lives. See, is that how you see it? That most people, most of the time, we ought to be giving thanks to the roles that are being fulfilled by those in situations of authority. And those rulers, they hold no terror over you, right? Verse 3. They hold no terror over those who do right. But for those who do wrong, well, do you want to be fearful? Sorry, do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then, 
then do what is right and you'll be commended for it. See, I hardly need to illustrate what this verse is teaching us. But if you do right, it's okay. But if you're not, well, then you feel it in your gut, don't you? You feel it in your gut when you fly around Long Reef Bend and you see that little sign that says that your speed has been checked by a stationary speed camera. And you think, I didn't even see the first sign that told me that the camera car was going to be parked up ahead. And then you remember, that was probably because I was flying off the lights trying to, trying to uh, drag off the P-plater that was there, right? And you didn't even see it. And all of a sudden, you feel it in your gut and you look down and you think, was I under? Well, then you've got nothing to fear. Was I over? Oh, no. Or are you unsure because you wouldn't have a clue what the limit is anyway? But see, or you'll feel it in your gut when you hear that the tax office is targeting the following professions this spring. And you think, oh no, are we on the list? Would it even matter? You feel it in your gut when you've bent the rules or you've cheated. When you've taken what does not belong to you. When you've misled and when you've lied. You'll feel it in your gut when you've foregone on your obligations and you've broken your promises. You'll feel it in your gut when you've abused your position and when you've broken the law. But of course, when you do right, end of verse 3, you'll be commended. But if you do wrong, well then the rest of verse 4 is there for you. Be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. See, depending on where you are at this morning, that verse will be either unsettling or comforting. Unsettling if you know that your behaviour has been defiant of the authorities under which you are meant to be subject to. Comforting. That the one way that God has established to deal with wrongdoers who have impacted your life is through the agents in positions of authority. That God is at work and caring for his world and you are not to take revenge But that doesn't mean that there isn't recourse and judgments that can be made against those who have done wrong. And that'll be done by those who hold those positions in positions of power. And that's Paul's application. In fact, he gives you two more reasons that you ought to subject yourself to the governing authorities. They're there in verse 5. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So he actually gives you four reasons in this passage. You ought to do it because it's God's pattern. You ought to do it because authority is there to serve you. You ought to do it because there's a possible punishment that will come if you don't. And you ought to do it for the fourth reason as a matter of conscience. That it is the right thing to do. It's in keeping with our new nature. And then you notice what Paul immediately goes on to do in applying this teaching. He says, pay your taxes. And I, I, don't, I don't know how you feel about that. I, you know, I, I think generally we have a, hopefully either a good to ambivalent view on taxes. But in the Roman day, it felt incredibly unjust for the Christian to have to pay the excess, the excise that was on, on them alone. But, but Paul goes on to say, no, no, this is why you pay your taxes. You, in fact, pay everyone what you owe them. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. And if you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. It says to the Christians back in first century, are you carrying a debt that you are unwilling to pay? Pay it. And for us to think into that space, even just briefly as we'll do now for a moment, 
and to recognise that running debt or living in credit is never free money. It's costly. It's accruing interest and perhaps other things as well. And if you don't pay, if your debts accumulate, not only do you accrue that loss, you're also spending your reputation, says Paul. Have you got no strategy to pay up? Paul says, pay. Pay what you owe to all that you owe. And then he moves it from the idea of finances across everything to say, is it respect that you've been withholding from people? Or if it's honour that you've been withholding, pay it. Give it. Look at how God has treated you. And so think about debt. But in the few moments I just want to take now, I just want to address two of the big questions that get raised in a passage such as this. It's to ask the question, if all authority is established by God, shouldn't the church run things? Wouldn't we do a better job of it? Wouldn't that streamline things and do it that way? And when it works like that, it's called a theocracy, where the church runs the state. And we know that this is not the way that actually things work best. Go back through human history and you'll see that to be true. But just think about it theologically and you understand why it must be true that a theocracy should not be the way that we establish our state. Because God has established his, his kingdom to, to advance, not through power and not through authority, but through the proclamation of his word and the outpouring of his spirit. That's how his kingdom comes. So if not a theocracy, then what have we got? Well, there's been three other options. Erasticism, which is where the state controls the church. And you only need to think about the national socialism in Germany in the 1930s as your example to see that that is terrible when that happens. Constantinianism, uh, which was set up and established under the reign of the Emperor Constantine, is where the state favours the church it runs a close alliance so that they achieve their mutual, um, mutual objectives. But again, not a great system and not one that you see reflected in the Bible. Partnership is the fourth option and here both the state and the church both recognise their distinct but God-given responsibilities. And ideally the desire is creating a constructive collaboration. And now when you listen to Jesus on this subject, you see that it's this fourth view that best describes how his followers should relate to the state. Perhaps the clearest explanation is given by Jesus when he's faced a question like this in Mark chapter 12. He's approached by some Pharisees and Herodians. They want to catch out Jesus and they approach him and hit him up about whether or not it's right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar. And rather than take sides the way that they expect him to, he says to them, in Mark chapter 13, verse 17, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And with masterful clarity, he affirms both the authority that Caesar has been given and the authority that God always has. And he alludes to the point that if you're asking about withholding tax from Caesar, you're probably also asking about withholding from God what belongs to him. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In the place where we live now, give to the government what belongs to them. Give to those in positions of authority what belongs to them. In so much as it's consistent with your faith and practice, do that. And give to God what belongs to God. And incidentally, you might want to take a moment and think about this. What does belong to God? And are you giving to God what belongs to Him? 
the, the second question that all of this raises is the question, is it ever okay to rebel against an authority? And, and of course, the answer is yes. Yes, it must be. Oh, this may well, this indeed is the pattern that God has established about divine authority uh, appointing human authority. But, but, but when is the point when you resist that authority? And so what are the exceptions? Famously, they've been summarized by two statements. You ought to rebel, you ought to resist, where the state commands what God forbids, and you ought to rebel and resist where the state forbids what God commands. And at these points, it is the Christian duty to obey God and his word and not the authority. Think of the Hebrew midwives in Egypt who refuse Pharaoh's command to kill the newborn baby boys. In verse 17 of chapter 1 of Exodus, the midwives fear God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And later on you read that God's kindness to these midwives means that uh, God God demonstrates his kindness to these midwives because of their disobedience to the governing authorities. They, They did not do what the state commanded. But then we're also to resist the immoral demands... Not only are we to resist the immoral demands of the government, where the state commands what God forbids, we're to think about then what that looks like. Um, so Daniel and his mates in Babylon, under threat of death, they will do what the state has outlawed. They're told they must not pray and worship their God, and so there in Babylon, whether it be fire or the lion's den, they don't comply with the government, and they bow down and worship, and they do what the state has forbidden them to do because God has commanded it. Same thing happens in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John get called up before the Sanhedrin. They've healed a guy and now they're teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And we read that they again and again commanded them, this is the Sanhedrin, for Peter and John not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John's reply, well, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You say we must not preach the gospel. God says we must. We will not comply with the authority that forbids what God commands. And so there will be times when resistance to the authorities will be right. And that's been the case throughout human history. It's true right now among the persecuted church that we're praying for today, as they defy their governments that are saying that they are not allowed to meet, that they must not evangelise, that they cannot carry the word of God, that they can't publicly worship, they can't privately worship, they can't move about or trade or they must defy. And so we ought to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ that find themselves in situations where their governing authorities are oppressive to them. And we ought to pray for ourselves, as increasingly happens in our own country. But not only pray for the persecuted church, pray for the leaders. That's a biblical command. It's what Paul tells Timothy to do. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. See, how how are you going to relate to the authority structures around you, political or in different places where you find yourself? Paul closes out this section and says, 
you ought to see yourself indebted. That God has blessed you and taken away that debt and that was a demonstration of his incredible love. And now you are set free and you're free to deal with your debt. That's how the last few verses of this passage wind out. You see, what do you do with debt? The option? Only one for the Christian. Pay it. Verse 8 of Romans 13, let no debt remain. Verse seven's made it concrete that you're to do that, whether it's taxes, revenue, respect, honour, and all those things. If you owe it, pay it. No exception, except the exception. It's in verse eight. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So respond in love to the O's in authority. In fact, to everyone, love. Love in the way that you would want to be loved. And that debt to love means that you won't take what is yours. Not a position of authority, but nothing else either. You, you, you won't take someone's spouse, adultery. You won't take someone's life, murder. You won't take someone's money or property, stealing. You won't take someone's stuff, coveting. You won't take anything else that the law might prescribe. None of that. Verse 9, you'll love your neighbour as yourself. And no doubt that is costly. But it is a debt worth paying. Because we know what it is to sit under the authority of the one who rules over all things and calls us to respond like that. How will you treat other people? Will you recognise that you are not the boss? That Jesus is in fact the mighty, mighty king and God has made him ruler of everything. And will you trust and as you are able, in so much as it doesn't require you, you to do what God forbids or where it forbids you to do what God commands... Will you indeed place yourself under those that God has placed in authority over you? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you give us wisdom? Would you humble us and give us courage that we might be able to look to your world and recognise not only its brokenness, but where you are at work, even in human broken systems? where you are working things for your good purposes. Lord, we pray for those who are persecuted, for those who must resist those in authority over them. Would you sustain them? Would you give them hope? Would you have them live at peace? And dear Heavenly Father, we pray that we would see in ourselves our incredible indebtedness to you, the continuing debt to love others. And you help us to know what that looks like as we relate to the political system around us, to those in authority, but Lord, into every human relationship that we might love others as we love ourselves. And as we have been loved by you, we know what love looks like. Heavenly Father, have us bend the knee and surrender to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.